Welcome to the MA Podcast, a magazine show dedicated to the pub trade. I'm the Morning Advertiser's Managing Editor, Nicholas Robinson, and today I'm joined by our editor, Ed Beddington. Morning, Nick. Also on the show this month, we'll hear from Curious Brewery's MD of Brewing, Gareth Bath, about the brand's new Beery HQ. Our senior features writer, Stuart Stone, finds out why grassroots sports are so important to the pub. And I go to a straight down top 50 gastro pub, The Boat Inn, to learn what it takes to launch a food-focused pub. Also, we've got Nikki Thatcher, who's chatting with this year's Great British Pub Awards winner, Mark Ania, straight after the win. But first, we've got Ed in the studio to talk through some of the biggest news stories in the pub trade from the past month. Ed, what's really struck a chord with our readers recently? Well, I think that there's a there's a wide range of things. It's it's quite a, an active sector at the moment, particularly if we look at the acquisitions area. Been a whole range of sort of shock announcements over the year. Um, probably the biggest at the moment that's certainly ongoing is the uh, the Stonegate uh, acquisition of EI, uh, which is sort of churning its way through the uh, the legal channels as we speak. But we've also seen things like Marston's are selling off pockets of pubs. Star have sold off pockets of pubs, and some of the pub codes are benefiting from that, like Admiral. We've seen them snap up a, a fair chunk of those, and, and that will give them good growth. Um, we're also seeing some of the smaller sort of um, MA500 members benefiting from that, with the likes of Red Oak Taverns taking on a pocket of pubs. Um, so I think that there's, there's a lot of activity, certainly in the... Um, in the in the M and A sector, I think there's going to be bigger shifts as we move forward. Once the Stonegate deal goes through, I think that will continue to be uh, an area of uh, regular activity. So it's uh, it's interesting times for anyone watching that market. If the the sector is contracting and there are fewer companies owning bigger pockets of pub cores, how can we still have these acquisitions? And you know, it's not insignificant chunks going between pub cores and Marston's and Admiral. It's 150 apiece. How can we still have this? What's causing that movement? I'm not even sure if it's going to be consolidation, really. I think that there's there's a degree of that, but when you see a, a group like EI uh, being absorbed by Stonegate, and also you've seen it with the with the Star deal with Punch, you you see those packets of pubs coming onto the market, and and they can either fuel new entrants into the sector or give greater scope and expansion for some of the smaller guys within there, so they become a bit more powerful, a bit more have a bit more buying power, a bit more reach. So it's it's. It's a very fluid situation, so it, it it's one to watch, one to one to keep an eye on. I don't think it's necessarily consolidation per se. I think it's more a case of, of shifting sand. Now, Simon Longbottom is guest editing our 7th of October issue. You mentioned the EI Stonegate acquisition. What did Simon give away, if anything, about the future of that estate? He's, uh, he's a... Um consummate uh, professional and uh, plays his cards very close to his chest but I think the the interesting things that, that, that jumped out from me within that is his desire to, to get his teeth back into that uh, lease and tenanted sector. It's been played a big part in his background he was um, he headed up the Green King Partners Division on there so it's, it's, um, it's a landscape he's familiar with and there's a sense that he is quite keen to get back into that and bring the benefits from, from the, uh, the tenanted uh, estate into to his uh, his managed division as well. I think there, there's for those that are sort of watching what's happening with EI and and looking at the uh, the shift from some of the tenanted sites into that managed thing. I think he's he's expressed desire to continue with that approach where necessary, and it's more a case of of, of assess each 
each pub as it comes up for for renewal uh, within the various agreements within uh, within the model, but to, to have a look at the the right model for each pub, uh, which is what EI have been doing. So I, I don't anticipate there'll be a major change in policy on that front. And obviously, he's very interested in craft union. He, he was uh, keen to to get to know that and see where where that can lead. That's a new model. That would be a very different model for Stonegate. Um, that more franchise sort of self-employed managed model it's new to, to them and, and to a lot of lot of people really so and the growth in it has been uh, phenomenal so that's a that's a bit of interesting thing for them to get their teeth into yeah and of course more on that in the next issue but also in the news this week we've been hearing about an endangered species and how a pub has been tackling that Indeed, yes. This is the story of the uh, manager of the Fleece, I believe, uh, Nigel Smith, um, who discovered that his name was actually um, uh, becoming extinct. So, uh, fantastic real story, actually. It really caught the attention and um, uh, mindset of, of, of the media and, and consumers as well. So, I think he managed to gather, he put out a call for all Nigels to uh, to descend on his uh, pub for an evening of celebration of the name of Nigel. And I think he managed to get close to 500 Nigels, uh, sadly no really famous Nigels, uh, such as Mr. Farage failed to uh, to make the cut or or invite. I'm not entirely sure, but it was great, and it's a great event. It was a great way for um, uh, a little bit of promotion for the pub as well. I think um, it, it it sort of does showcase you know the versatility of uh, of pubs and and the kind of events you can put on and fantastic publicity for for Nigel and his pub. Mm. Now, from decline to rising, uh, we've been talking about veganism uh, this month as well, especially around Weatherspoons. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and as somebody with um, with a background in the meat trade as well of my uh, past life, I, I do struggle to talk about veganism in, in many ways. Yeah, However, well, indeed, uh, in... <laughs> In many ways, it's become such a such an exciting and dynamic sort of topic at the moment, and it's not. It's, it, let's be honest; it, it's not just vegans. We're not talking about vegans. We're talking about more flexible eating. That horrible word, flexitarians, and things like this, where people are choosing to moderate their diet and and maybe have meat-free days or or just choose different products. And and for a lot of places and a lot of things I talk to people about, it's, it's having that um, flexibility in your menu that you've got. You know a range of dishes. However, um, it, it is that flexibility, and, and having the, the the broader diversity on the menu also means that you know if you've got a group of diners coming out, and you've got one vegan amongst that group, you're more likely to get uh, people coming and staying, and a bigger group. Whereas otherwise, they may turn around and go to to your competitors. So, to have a broader mix of, of menu options, including those vegan options, is 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 good practice. And obviously, it's getting traction. Uh, we're seeing a lot of meat-free uh, burgers coming onto the market, and also, of course, now as uh, this week we saw Weatherspoons announced that they were increasing the, um, their vegan offer on their menus. And when you start to see that really sort of mainstream operation starting to embrace this, you can see there's serious momentum in this. And and if if someone like Weatherspoons is taking it seriously, then I, my view is that other pubs should be as well have got to follow suit it's uh, it's a bit of a no-brainer yeah and we, we don't know what reasons Weatherspoons made that decision for but there must be some sort of trend within their national business that's prompted them to go we need a focused offer and there's another free from sector that is still um, engaging a lot of conversation within the sector a lot of questions surrounding it as well whether it's worthy whether it's business ready what is that 
obviously that's the, the no and low uh, sector or the low and no sector of, uh, of, of alcoholic drinks. Um, we're seeing more conversation around this. It's probably maybe a little bit further back than that, that vegan movement at the moment. Um, but it's, it's, it's a hugely important sector and it's one the uh, on-trade really needs to embrace. I mean, it, it's interesting. I have arguments with operators and, and some of them will say, you know, I've, I've bought a, you know, a case of Beck's Blue and I've put it in the fridge and it's not sold and it's gone off. And, and I sort of take the argument and say, well, where did you put it in the fridge and how else did you promote it and how did you market it and how did you draw attention to it? So you're just sticking it at the bottom of the fridge. No one can see it. No one's interested. They're not going to buy it. But for the for the people that argue that this this isn't a key trend and this isn't something that they should be taking seriously, I'd suggest you go to your local supermarket and have a look at the amount of space that Tesco and Sainsbury's and Waitrose and the like are giving to this this area of the market because, you know, they they don't give that space easily. You know, that's a cost to them to to devote space to to an area and for the same reasons we say with with uh, Weatherspoon's taking the vegan model seriously the off trade is taking the uh, low and no sector very seriously they're giving some serious amount of shelf space to it so for those of you who say no this isn't of interest and they can't sell it I'd say porky pies on that really yeah. you're just not doing a good enough job on it and it's selling through as well because I in the summer especially I drink a low alcohol low calorie gin and tonic and yep. quite often it sells through especially on hot days and the alcohol free sections in supermarkets sell through pretty quickly you can see that and indeed I mean this is this is the irony you think about um, if somebody's out in your pub and they're not drinking and their only choice is either sort of uh, calorific soft drinks or um, you know bland insipid sort of options sort of a lime and soda they're going to have one they're going to nurse it all night they're not going to be spending much money in your pub if you can present them with a with a greater degree of choice they're going to be buying in the rounds more they're going to be spending more money it's 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 upsell stuff you know it's it, it's common sense it's not easy i'm not and i'm not suggesting that it's a simple case of just put it on the shelf and and it'll fly off it's not you've got to sell it you've got to market it because people aren't used to seeing this but the fact that they're used to going into the supermarket now and they're buying it and and taking it home and drinking it suggests that there is a market here there's an opportunity and and if we're not tapping into that then it's another kind of you know chink in the armor that we're we're gifting to um to the off trade and to other sectors how are we strengthening that armour as a brand? So I think, I mean, we, we talk about it a lot. We're, we're, we're doing lots of things, in fact, and um, it will be a key plank uh, of focus in our Drinks Tank Conference, which is coming up on the 27th of November in London. That's going to be looking across the, the whole drinks category in the on-trade, um, whether that's pubs, bars, restaurants, hotels, things like this. So it's a very broad, um, broad focus, but it's going to look at the key trends in that market Obviously, low and no is, is a big part of that, and it will be something we're, we're covering off, but we'll be doing live focus groups on stage. We'll be speaking to sort of key influencers, politicians on their views on, on how they view the, uh, the on-trade and, and the attitudes within, uh, within the legal sector. And, uh, and yeah, an interesting and um, a diverse uh, discussion around everything that makes our, our on-trade drink sector exciting and, uh, and dynamic. Um, we've got more details about that on the website and in the magazine as well. We're going to have more insight from Ed throughout the rest of the show, but now I'd like to go to a feature about Curious Brewery. I met Curious Brewery's MD for brewing Gareth Bath at the company's new taproom and brew house in Ashford in Kent to see what they've been investing in. 
Gareth, I mean, this is amazing here. Tell us what you've been doing at Curious over the past few months. The last few months, also probably the last five or six years almost, bringing this site through to, to where it is now. And then March last year, we broke the ground on, on, on the site, so just over a year, and going from uh, a rubble site to what is now this, this space. You know, we talk about it as our cathedral of brewing. It's a big town centre, um, real statement of, of modern brewing. The, the site is you know, pretty interesting in terms of its design. Uh, 20,000 square foot site, it's got 5,000 square foot of retail space, restaurant, bar, tap room, um, you know, real tourism kind of running right the way through it. I mean, we're, we're in the tap room, restaurant, bar area now, and it's already quite busy even though you've not been open that long, um, which is, is great for you, obviously. Um, but is, is that why do you think um, Chapel Down, a large English wine producer, is interested in expanding its, its beer presence? got this kind of goal in the, the mid to long term to be the UK's most exciting drinks company. Um, the core of the team have had beer in their background. Fraser, our CEO, used to run the Heineken brand globally. Um, I've had you know, beer in my veins you know, for the last 20 years of my career pretty much. Uh, our chairman used to run uh, Scottish in Newcastle and, and Whitbread. So we've kind of got a portfolio of, of premium drinks in, in, in our thinking. So bringing this site on board from a brewing point of view, bringing the gin works on in King's Cross from a distilling point of view, and being that premium British drinks portfolio supplier to the, to, to the trade, that's totally what we've been trying to do. And we think that's pretty unique from a beer brand point of view. That is our total USP, you know, beer brewed by winemakers. And I think you, know, you can compete on price or you can be just another homogenous brand making another New England IPA with no story and it's really hard to tell the difference between one and the other. You know, we'll just anchor ourselves to this brewed by winemakers, spirit of the winemaker um, angle, which we think you know, our audience seems to really like anyway. You seem to have everything really sewn up into a nice package. So you were telling us earlier on, on the, the balcony in the restaurant that um, you know there is a chapel down experience. So you can start at the vineyard, you can move on to the brewery, you can go to the gym works at King's Cross. What, what's next? Because it's, it's a really nice story already. What's for the future? Yeah, well, what is next? We, we, we've got a, a few projects in burning in the background, but you know the, at present we're kind of pretty laser focused on the opportunity, the headroom in, in English wine. You know, English wine is really hot uh, as a category right now, but it's a, you know, a demand versus supply market. So we're planting as quickly as, and as, you know, as into as high quality land as we possibly can to continue to make the best sparkling wine. And then at some point, start to hit some of that demand. Super premium spirits, again, loads of headroom um, for, for brands in that space and for you know, our entree partners to make lots of you know, value or increase their margins in that way. So that's a real focus for us. The same in beer. This is a tiny beer brand in the scheme of things. Um, and, and so having brand experience home like this on the back of which to grow the brand is, is, is really important. If we can knit the three of them together, so we've just started working a bit more with Matthew Clark on their homegrown campaign, which is really sort of talking about the different areas of the portfolio. Um, then hopefully that's something that the trade will really get behind it. One, one thing that has just occurred to me actually is that you've brought the, the wine element of uh, Chapel Down into the gym portfolio. Yeah. Is there any uh, plans or thoughts to bring the beer into the gym portfolio or to cross-pollinate any of the, the categories? Uh, so we, we do it in beer. Our main beer, Curious Brew, our lager is made with champagne yeast. Uh, we use a hop called Nelson Sauvignon from New Zealand which has got lots of qualities of Sauvignon Blanc as a great variety. 
we brewed a beer with Beaver Town last year, which is a brewed IPA where we use 20% of the sort of liquid base as our Bacchus juice. Uh, we've aged uh, a saison that we made with brew by numbers in one of our Pinot Noir barrels. So that stuff, I think, is is really exciting. Like Chapel Down is a landowner, is a farmer. Yeah, we're going to take our fruit from from the fields and we'll turn that into a delicious drink. And I think the brewing side of the business has got you know some really interesting sort of journeys ahead of it in working closely with Kent hop growers, Kent barley growers. And really started to, to take a different angle to how we think about brewing our beer, especially now we've got this site where we can be really flexible with, with, with the type of beers we brew. I think beer will come into spirits. I don't know, Mark, my colleague who runs the spirits and wine side of the business, will have to thrash that one out. You never say never. I, you know, I think there's so much scope. You know, low and low is so hot right now. How would a winemaker approach the low and low opportunity? I think it's really interesting. And just looking at the craft beer segment um, is growing and mm-hmm. you know it's, we've had that massive excitement where everybody's kind of really excited about it really talking about it um, what what does the future look like it's almost kind of bedding in now yeah I, 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 that is exactly what I'd say I think for the next few years we'll see some stabilisation in the market for sure um, and that's going to be a case of big brewers getting their ducks in a row yeah you know now we've had that acquisition sort of period and there's more acquisition coming that, we, that, that we're aware of but then what also happens in that period of time when you've got so much distribution of really great quality beers as a result of the kind of uh, that, that acquisition is that you've got more people having the opportunity to try flavour forward aroma forward you know great modern beers so I think the future's then really positive still I think it will level out and then we'll kick on past 10% market share again similar to the stakes States did exactly the same. It kind of hit seven, eight percent, leveled out, kicked over through ten percent, leveled out, kicked on again as you continue to bring in kind of more drinkers. Um, I think IPA has still got a long way to go. Uh, you know, there's lots of New England IPAs not doing very much. You know, there, there's lots of opportunity to still you know get people into really good, high quality, consistently well brewed brewed IPAs. But then the thinking of craft brewers to the lager category, yeah, that again, which is why we focus so much in that space of Curious Brew. And I look at some of the premium, super premium lager brands that are coming from Europe and Southeast Asia and dominating the taps. Um, and they're premium brands, undoubtedly brilliant premium brands, but the credibility of the beer recipes themselves, you know, I would, I, personally, I would question. Um, and so being an English super premium lager brand that's got all the credibility of a craft brewer in the way we go about bringing our beer I think that that you know and I think other people will come into that that premium lager space so again that's great for drinkers it's a great margin for, for retailers our trade partners big beer brand will disappear in the next 10 years do you, do you have one in mind a couple yeah a couple but it, it, I'm not saying anything that hasn't happened before yeah? if you go back you know 30 years now, there's a beer brand called Double Diamond. It's the third biggest beer brand in the market. Would be the number one now because you think about the size and volume of the beer market at that point. Uh, and in 10 years, it disappeared yeah, as, as the market trends changed. In 1969, we were a 99.5% ale market. In the course of you know 50 years, we we're a nearly 70% lager market. So there's some mainstream beer brands that are in double-digit decline, and for sure, I think one of them will go. 
you kind of outlined the, the threats to the, the mainstream beer market. Mm-hmm. To stop craft from growing at, at the, the 10% and then leveling out the 10% that you, that you mentioned earlier, what could, what could do that? What, what are the threats to craft beer? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question because I think it's one that we can see live in the market now in two spaces. There's so many new breweries um, all fighting for a a similar sort of space with this sort of hazy Vermont, um, you know, New England IPA style, and, and that's a beer style that want you brew it once, you can absolutely nail it, it's delicious. The next time, you know, it, it's hops masking some really terrible brewing or some unfortunate accident within the brewing process. So, quality is totally going to be a threat in the same way as it threatens the future of cask. So, I would be devastated if we don't find a way around, uh, you know, the decline of cast beer but quality could be a threat for, 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 for craft for sure I think cash yeah we've seen a few people recently struggle with cash it's a really precarious position for people that want to grow in terms of production how they grow production and equipment in terms of you know, navigating their way through the big brewers you know and the taps and getting onto the bars but then through the sort of gateways of, um, of duty, small brewers' duty relief, and scaling through that, it's really, really challenging from a cash flow point of view. That is going to be a threat to people that want to grow. Like we're incredibly fortunate. We're really well-resourced, really well-backed and invested as, as being part of Chapman. And that means that we can build sites like this and our customers can have confidence in us that, you know, we're sticking around but primarily quality is the main thing if we can keep quality flavour first aroma first um, then we'll be in a good place yeah. it, I mean it's just like everything that consumers eat or drink if it's not tasting good or looking good or, or whatever it's, it's just not going to cut the mustard it's going to die yeah, yeah. and, and, and it's, it's why I reference cider yeah it's, you think about all the insight we hear all the consumer trends that we look at you know, product authenticity, you know, you think, think about things like blockchain where you start to break down into what is my drink made of, where has it been in its journey? And, you know, the cider is dominated by liquids made out of concentrate, you know, or fermented to 12% and cut back with water. It just goes and flavoured with toffee apple and this, that and the other. And surely there, you know, there, there is an opportunity within you know, artisanal producers to, to follow the sort of trends of craft beer and have some fun in the craft cider space, certainly on our agenda. Alcohol segment, drink segment, I mean, everything actually is, is oversaturated with choice. But you can go out to a supermarket and you can have your pick of any kind of beer or spirit or, or whatever. How, how can operators set themselves up to, to be as attractive to consumers that could quite easily go and pay less for a beer in a supermarket, but to make sure that they come to their business? Yeah, it's frightening, isn't it? The supermarkets, even in the last 12 months, they've probably got themselves to be two, three years ahead of where the main managed on-premise kind of groups are in terms of range. It's just frightening. Um, and an incredible choice. Um, in some cases, probably taking that choice too far yeah, and actually not reference their audience and it's getting, getting dusty on the shelves. Um, the, the, for me like the on-premise has to you know, really stay ahead of the game on quality. That's the lead, the experience, the atmosphere that you've got in your on-premise venue. Pe- people don't come to the pub, in my opinion, 
for your drinks range, they come for the occasion, they come for what you offer as a total package. They stay because of the drinks range, they spend more money because of the drinks range, and they come back because of the drinks range. So if you offer some trusted stuff and some new news that keeps it interesting, then, then that's definitely, um, you know, would, would be my thinking. The other bit, we're, we're anchored to this ancient system of lead brewers. Um, you know, of Molson Coors or Heineken UK, you know, own, owning all the equipment. And if you've got a free trade outlet, yeah, where you where you own the premises, and you spend all that money on your on getting that site, why not just buy your cellar equipment? If you buy your own cellar equipment, then you don't have to give seventy percent of your taps to stuff that you potentially don't want to range, um, and and you really take control of curating a really solid drinks offering as opposed to having to compromise. That said, you know, the big brewers have acquired some pretty solid beer brands. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time, Gareth. I really appreciate the, the tour and seeing this amazing site as well. Um, I can't wait until, yeah, until we can get some beer fresh off the line as well, just to see what it's like. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming in, Nick. Really appreciate it. Right, now that, that's quite interesting, actually. Um, so Gareth is talking about the the new um, brewery and tap room and why consumers are interested to go to somewhere like that. It's very central in the town, it's right next to the train station. They're getting a lot of customers just coming either to visit that specifically or they're kind of stopping in town between going to, um, it's on the Eurostar, stopping in and having a, a drink. Um, why are consumers drawn to experiential places like this more now these days? It, it's a growing trend, isn't it? I think everyone likes to get as much bang for their buck as possible. And I think the more bells and whistles that, that they can add or, or that the operators can add to uh, to the experience is, is to the best. I think people are looking for uh, authenticity and they like to see, you know, where products are coming from. So, I mean, there's been big growth in, in brewery taps and, you know, people wanting to go around breweries and experience that um that thing is a which, which I guess for people that work in the profession going and wandering around the brewery is a bit of a busman's holiday to a certain extent but consumers do seem to uh, do seem to enjoy it and it, it is tapping into that sort of you know wanting to know where things are from and how they're made and and really getting under the skin of, of the products and brands and it also breeds out helps to breed that brand loyalty uh, I mean, you look at the success of, of Brewdog and, and what it does and it takes you know it's uh, it's Brewdog fans on master places and and sort of throws them in at the brewery and, and gives them a real sort of experience and people people like to tap into that so what's driving it it changing consumer mindset i guess i think you know we've got a lot of leisure opportunities available to us these days um we don't have to leave our homes um to access the latest entertainment so people expect have I guess they expect more when they're out, so they may be going out a little less, so they want that, that bit more experience when they're out. And I think being able to, to visit a brewery tap and, and spend time and see these kind of things and, and really get to grips with it is, is appealing. Yeah, it's quite interesting because a brewery tap room is not a new thing. There's hundreds of brewers across no. the land, large and small, doing this. What is interesting is when pubs do it themselves. So we've got brew house and kitchen. Very much and so, yeah. There's, there's all sorts of pubs doing it all over the land. What benefits do you think that brings to a, a traditional pub operation? Well, margin benefits, one thing, I guess. If you really want to be brutally honest about it, if you're brewing your own beer, um, then uh, then it's a, it's a fantastic... Uh, story from that point of view but I think again it's it's the authenticity it's um, 
I mean, the Brew House and Kitchen have been a, a phenomenal success, and the guys there have done a fantastic job of, of taking that forward. And, and that's spilling out. You're seeing more pubs embracing that sort of you know, brewing on-site opportunity. Um, it's partly driven by the, the craft beer movement and the resurgence of interest into, uh, into beers that we see amongst consumers. So people are interested. They want, um, they want the new, they're hungry for that kind of uh, new product and new development rather than the, the same old, same old. Um, and if it's small and it's niche, there's an element of ownership amongst the consumers. You know, this is my, my beer, this is my product, rather than you know, the products that's uh, advertised on hoardings all around the country. So there's, there's that sense of um, connection to it, I guess. And it taps into what we're saying about you know, the brewery visits and the brewery taps and things like this. this is, it is something that, that, that people like to see, that artisanal sort of production methods on site. You, know, you can watch the guys making it, you can even sign up to brew lessons in the pubs. Uh, certainly I know Brew House and Kitchen do a lot of, sort of uh, brew days where people come in and brew their own beer and, you know, and all that kind of stuff is it, it's perfect. It's what people want, you know. You see people signing up to butcher shops to go and do butchery courses. Uh, we've yet to see anyone sign up to spend a day in Tesco stocking shelves. Um, but there you go. Let's see how many more times Ed can get his meat passed in the <laughs> podcast today. It's, it's unintentional, I promise. Now we're going to go to um, to a feature from Stuart Sausages. Stone, who, who last month went to the House of Parliament for the launch of a new report about the importance of sport in pubs. Uh, the Sport and Recreational Alliance report showed pubs contribute around £40 million to grassroots sports. Yeah, I'm, my name's Will Hawkes. I'm a freelance writer. Uh, I used to work on the sports desk at The Independent, and since then I've written a lot about uh, pubs and beer. So I kind of have a foot in both camps. I know about the sporting world, I know about the, the world of pubs and beer. Fantastic. And um, what do you feel uh, grassroots sports offers individuals, communities, and why is it so important to pubs support local teams? I think it offers, I mean, you use the word communities there, I think it creates community. You know, when you have a strong local uh, cricket team, when that cricket team is supported by the people in the village, often by the, the publican, that really makes a difference to, to a local community. And that can be a, a rural community or a city community. It really doesn't matter where it is. You know, strong communities can be built anywhere. And I think uh, sports teams can play a big role in that. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And um, what impact do you hope that this report has ultimately mean? What do you feel that the next steps or kind of any knock-on impact of this could be potentially? I hope that people understand a bit better just what a significant thing this is. You know, we all, as I said earlier, we all know about a local cricket team supported by a pub, but actually there's a huge nationwide culture here that's kind of been underreported. Um, and I think there's something to be celebrated. I think it's, it's, it's beneficial. It's good for, for the health of the country. Fantastic. And um, why do you think there's such a close connection between pubs and grassroots sports teams? I think, again, you go back to that community aspect. They're both about that community element. Uh, of course, there's a, there's a business element. You know, if, if you've got the, the guys who run band trap teams down in East Kent, on Tuesday evening, their pub might be empty, but if they've got three, four teams bat and trap, there'll be people in there, they'll lay on some free food, the people will be buying two or three pints each. It works well for all of them. Fantastic. And um, are there any grassroots teams that you have a kind of connection to personally and kind of does a play a role in that at all? Well I have, I have in the past, I mean I grew up in a village in Kent called Woodchurch where the, the cricket team was, was, a, was a big thing um, and that was one of the reasons why I love cricket because we could go when they were playing and, and use, their, use their spare kit that was as big as we were. Um, now less so, I've got three children so I haven't got a huge amount of time for sport in my life mm. but hopefully when I'm you know, in my dotage I'll be able to go back to that. 
Fantastic. And last question, kind of in the era kind of when there are billions of pounds being spent on broadcast deals and huge transfer fees, do you think that money trickling down from the top level of sport to grassroots would ultimately benefit pubs? Kind of. I, I think it would benefit. It would benefit all of us. I think in a, in an era where you know a famous clubs like Bolton Wanderers and Bury are struggling, you see how no money trickles down even a few levels. So to the grassroots level, you know, and, and I think it would be beneficial in so many different ways. You know, this is so important to the health and well-being of our country. And it, I think it's you know we, there needs to be more done by those who are who are coining it at the top. So I'm Mike Hales. I am the the uh, the owner of Imaginings. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, fantastic. And I suppose, what do you feel um, grassroots sports offers individuals and communities, and why is it important that um, pubs support local teams and grassroots sport? Grassroots sport is important in local communities. Um, for us, it's been pinnacle in changing lives uh, and actually saving lives. Um, so it's, it's quite key um, that people understand the benefits and the, uh, the, real, the real changes that it's making within those communities. And I suppose, how does your how does your pub get involved in that? Our our pub, oh, uh, the Bottles Arms, gets involved in that with uh, with Blokes United. So we we sponsor, pay for a football um, group to meet once a week. Um, they meet, they they engage in in, in football activities. Um, they come all walks of life, turn up, play football, um, and then come back to the pub for a drink and some some free food that we lay on. Okay, fantastic. I suppose what impact do you hope that this report has ultimately on, on the local pubs and grassroots sport? I hope the report ultimately has um, makes more pubs aware of the importance the importance of supporting these local community teams uh, and bringing out those those hidden gems within the community. Um, like I said, I was is now developing and changing life, so it's, it's very important to be able to know that. Absolutely fantastic. I mean, you touched on a, touched on a little bit before, but I just want to kind of what um, are there any grassroots teams that you have a connection to personally? I suppose what what does your pub do day to day? Kind of support them. You talked about Blocks United, but um, yeah, so we've got Blocks United day to day. We've got um, our local bowling team. Uh, we involved in local running clubs, local cricket clubs. So we really do engage within the community uh, and the different aspects of it. Okay, fantastic. And last one is kind of in an era of billions of pounds being spent in broadcast deals and huge transfer fees. Do you think that money trickling down from top level sports to grassroots would ultimately benefit pubs? I think it'd be massive um, if some of that top level sport, the, the, the funds, the money from that, did, did come down to the local, uh, the local teams. I know our blokes United uh, are looking at expanding. We have expanded to two, mm-hmm. two more cities, if you will, two more towns. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be nice to think that we could be rolled out across the country with, with the right funding. So Ed, I'm not really a sports fan myself, but I see how important it is to pubs. Um, I've got relatives who are very much into sports and go to the pub to watch it. Why does it remain such an important part of the pub offering? It's the fundamental thing about pubs, isn't it? You know, it's a gathering place. It's a place for people to get together. I mean, which would you rather do? Sit at home on your own watching a football match? Or would you rather be down in a pub? You know, with the atmosphere that's around it, with all your friends, you know, as a group communal activity. Um, I mean, it's the next best thing to actually going to the stadium and watching it yourself, isn't it? So um, it, it creates that sense of atmosphere. You know, there's beer on tap, which is always a good thing. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just more of a sociable activity than, than necessarily just sort of sitting on the sofa and watching it. So I think... Um, from that point of view, from the from the big sports or from the from the mainstream sports, that's 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 key. Um, I think on the grassroots level, pubs are phenomenal supporters of grassroots sport. You know, from whether that's from sponsoring team kits, through to having their own teams and creating, helping to create leagues and things like that. Whether that's from 
you know, the, the, the less active, the darts and the pool through to, you know, football teams and, um, and local rugby teams and things like that. And it's, it's being, I guess it's for the pubs, it's being a part of the fabric of the society that they're in and that, that community. So grassroots, vitally important. Um, as part of that community activity, and I think on the on the bigger level, the the main sporting events and the not the day to day sort of uh, the Premier League and things like this, you know, it's um, if, if your pub is is set up for that kind of model, then it, it it's key. It gets people through the door. It drives footfall, um, and you can build your business around that. It is interesting. Um, yeah, I do actually quite enjoy a, a match in the pub if I've got a drink and the atmosphere is there, you're right. What I do prefer, though, is going to venues where I can actually take part and interact. So we did a flight club in Manchester recently, didn't we? Yes, yeah. What other examples of pubs are there of actually kind of creating that more experiential? I think it, that it, it's a growing thing, and we, we talk about it quite a lot. It's um, uh, competitive socialisation is, is the current buzzword around it. Um, essentially, that means going and playing darts in the pub with your mates. Um, we've created a, a, a new term for it. But we are becoming more sophisticated. Like you say, Flight Club has reinvented that darts experience. You know, Prior to that, if you'd said, let's go and play darts at the pub, most people... No, thanks. Yeah, there yeah. we go. I was saying for later, but we'll see. No. Um, <laughs> But it has recreated uh, the fun of it in a great way. And we're seeing that replication in other areas. You know, we've got um, things like junkyard golf and swingers that are, are sort of reinventing the um, uh, the crazy golf experience. And, and while that's not necessarily pub-related, we are seeing certain pubs that they've got the space, they can embrace elements of this, um, like the uh, the Four Thieves in, uh, in Clapham. They've got a bit of everything in there. But it's it's just a... As we say, people are looking for for the experience. People want these kind of things. Um, so why not reinvent that? That traditional pubs were traditionally places that people would go to, you know, and uh, take part in activities like darts and pool. So why not reinvent it for a new generation and make it more fun? Um, shuffleboards, you know, ping pong tables. We're seeing all these really starting to to come back into fashion, and and we can we we have concerns over the younger consumers and their attitudes towards pubs and going out and, and drinking and all these kind of things but they they embrace these kind of activities so if you've got the capability to do it then i'd say why aren't you doing it and it does work i've got no inclination whatsoever to go play darts in a pub what about later when i was in flight club i was a winner i won pretty much not every match but you know a couple of matches i won anyway it was good it was it brought out the competitive edge in me it was beers I was, I was in getting it. quite aggressive at one point. I was getting aggressive, sorry about that. From sports to gastropubs, in our next feature, we hear from the chef patron of the Boat Inn in Litchfield. Liam Dillon launched the Midlands pub recently with a focus on high-quality food. I went along to see how things were done. Gastropubs are at the centre of modern British cuisine, offering consumers twists on classic dishes as well as food that's a little more adventurous. And Litchfield's The Boat Inn is no exception to that rule. I'm joined by the pub's chef breton, Liam Dillon, ahead of the 10th Estreadam Top 50 Gastro Pubs Regional Dinner, which is being held at the boat. Liam, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us first, you set out to open a pub with an outstanding food offer. Why? I think for me, I wanted to open the Gastro Pub. I think it lends itself because the site I purchased is a pub, in, it's a pub um, the size of pub. And growing up in Litchfield, I didn't find there's a lot of quality restaurants around in the area. That might be sound a little uh, big-headed because that's what we're trying to achieve, but there really wasn't anything stand out in Litchfield. Um, I was looking at sites in Birmingham thinking that's where I need to be. Um, And then I looked closer to home and it kind of all fell into place. Um, And 
the, the dream is or the mission statement is to create a, a quality-led uh, food and beverage hub in Litchfield in Staffordshire. So yeah, that's, that's the reason really. Like you said, that you're not in um, a town centre or a city centre like Birmingham. You are very much a destination pub. How have you managed to attract diners and, and drinkers to the venue? I think purely for believing in what we can achieve and what we can offer. And it's just grown naturally and organically. You know, the guest structure started to build. So it's taken two and a half years to kind of raise the awareness, if you will, of what we're trying to achieve here. How easy it was to launch then and, and get that, that reputation and build up the customer base? Very difficult. We, I say this quite often, that we didn't have the luxury, and it might not be the best word to use, but of buying a site, renovating it, and then opening, saying, this is what I'm going to do now. We bought a going concern, so one night they took their card machines out, I put mine in, and then we had to kind of just carry on. So the, all the guests just were saying, kind of saying, what's going on, who's this, what, what's the menu, why is the menu changing? So it's taken time to kind of to change and to kind of move to where you want to be. But then again, two and a half years is quite a, it's quite a quick turnaround, I feel. Do you think that, that challenge and not being able to just kind of set up in a, a busy, lots of feet walking by area, has that made you a better operator? I've probably learned a lot more lessons. I, wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say better, but I've learned, it's been a, it's a huge learning curve, that's for sure, opening, opening the boat. In terms of learnings then, what was the, the biggest challenge that you've had to overcome? Um, challenges, I think any operator would, would say staffing is difficult. You know, we're a roadside uh, pub, you know, and in Litchfield, it's hard to get the right people that understand what you want to do and also to get guys that want to come here and, and, and do this as a career rather than just a bit of pocket money, you know. Um, as a food-focused pub then, um, what's your approach to sourcing your ingredients? Um, we try to source local as much as we can. Um, sustainable also but it's 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 a toss-up between consistency and being as local as possible we have a, a fantastic lamb supplier literally on the other side of the a road next to us i got a lamb off him once and it's fantastic i asked for another one he said oh, it's gonna be another week yet so you know i have to go a little further afield to get the consistency that i need but litchfield produce amazing soft fruits we get you know, a lot of vegetables and fruits we get in litchfield so um, where we can we will and if, if not the consistency we have to look a little bit further afield how does that real locality so that the lamb like you just mentioned and yeah. the soft fruits how does that add value to the plate when it comes to the customer on the table I think it's nice that people it all adds to the experience of being coming to the boat because of what we're trying to achieve if we're using as many ingredients as we can from Litchfield that adds to our that adds to what we're trying to do because no one else can do that because they're not in Litchfield you know so it kind of adds to why you come to the boat as well the, the pub's come a long way in um, a very short space of time actually I remember coming to judge you for newcomer of the year for the Australia Dam Top yeah. Degasso Pubs which obviously you won yeah. um, in 2019 what's next for, for the boating I think just continuing to do what we are doing really we have like I said the guest structure is building we have a lot of people that return custom coming here yes it needs to be a special occasion restaurant because of what we're trying to offer but also we want to be busy throughout the week. So I think it's build the team, you know, make the menu stronger, make the offering stronger, just carry on doing what we're doing, really. There's lots lots more work to be done on, on the pub itself. It's a big site, so it needs a lot of care and attention. So, yeah, loads of changes to make the experience better for the guests as well. Obviously, I've just mentioned there that I, I came and saw it kind of middle of the transformation. Yeah. And to me, it seems, you know, wow, big, big impact when I walked in again. But has it felt quick to you? Looking back... It's felt like a lifetime, but I know it's, it's, it has been quick. It has been a big change, and it's kind of every day we're trying to push and change different things and 
just make things better all the time. So yeah, it feels a lifetime, but in, in reality, it has been quite a, a short space of time, really. There's um, a lot of turbulence in the hospitality sector at the moment. Um, the Pope has had to change over the years to, to adapt to, to changing consumer demands, and, and we still are as an industry. Mm. What does the future hold in, in your mind for the, the Great British Gastro Pub? I mentioned before, I'm not very good at predictions and things like that, but you know, it's, it's recognition of what you can find in a gastro pub and you know the awareness that these awards uh, and this list kind of brings to people that will help keep the 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 gastro pub as a you know a staple really yeah i think it's just the awareness is being raised and just just keep using them i mean it can be a special occasion also a lot of gastro pubs have very uh, good value for money menus um so yeah so it can be a you know a couple of times a month rather than being just when it's your birthday anniversary you know so it's uh, affordable but then a lot of effort gone into the food that's being offered. Obviously, um, we're hosting a dinner here tonight, yes. uh, which you and your team have yeah. um, prepared, yeah. and it's it's happening in the kitchen right now. Mm-hmm. Talk to us about that menu and, and what's inspired a few of the dishes for the the people that aren't going to be trying it tonight. Right, okay. Um, four courses this evening. Um, we're trying to kind of a um, little bit of fine dining, a little bit casual. Um, using venison. Um, unfortunately, it's not as local to Litchfield as I'd like it to be. Um, you know, it's, again, it's difficult to find things in the Midlands, you know, especially fish and shellfish that, you know, um, in the area. Um, I think the main course, the venison, is going to be a standout. Um, it's a beautiful um, venison from, from Scot- Scottish venison, just coming to season now. It's one of my favourite ingredients to work with in the autumn. Um, and then we start with a small broth. Uh, we have a goat cheese uh, tortellini and a, and a clam broth. And then moving after that, we have a uh, chalk string trout dish uh, wrapped in cabbage and served with a fish sauce and then dessert is a, um, a chocolate uh, chocolate parfait of salted caramel so it's kind of lots of different things going on I hope it's quite interesting and entertaining I'm looking forward to it it's going to be, be I'm quite jealous actually I'd like to sit down and eat myself but, but yeah that's what's to come tonight how have you incorporated Estrella into into some of the dishes in terms of the actual ingredients um, yeah. or in terms of pairing as well? So more so with the pairing, I think for the main menu, we've used uh, the beer in our bread. We have a, a beer soaked spelt grain loaf, what you have at the start of the evening. Um, we've done a couple of snacks, used Welsh rarebit, we've used the, uh, the beer in there. Um, little things like that that's going to give a little nod to the to the evening um, and then also I think just the pairings through the dinner we're going to have with each with each dish picking out the, the different notes the malt from the uh, the marinade venison and things like that so it's going to be exciting great I can't wait to try it Liam thank you so much for your time I can't wait to see what the future holds for the boat in thank you very much Ed it's quite interesting because there's the, it's not necessarily a debate but there's we seem to segment the pub sector into two areas wet lead dry lead mm. Liam's obviously, um, he's got a local pub, he's got a good wet trade, but he's focusing on high quality food. But how can an operator these days survive without a food offer? Well, it's interesting. I remember when I started on the MA about four or five years ago, um, the, the talk was, you know, the wet lead pub was dead and you know, all the focus on food. And it was, it was in the wake of the smoking ban that, that we all rushed into food in a bigger way, but because the opportunity was there, you know, you could actually now sit in the pub and not have... Doris next to you blowing smoke in your face while you try to eat your sausage. Nice. It's another meaty reference there. Uh, this is, I think, the, the, the interesting thing now, though, is we are seeing this resurgence in, in the wet lead pump from people writing it off a few years ago. It, it's bouncing back. Yes, it's led by the more urban pubs, and Stonegate is a prime example of that, very urban 
city-based and very wet-led and doing phenomenally well. We've just seen that uh, Mitchells and Butlers have, have put emphasis on their, uh, their recent sort of uh, successful results is, is down to strong performance on, on the drink side. So it, it, it is, it, yes, it's skewed slightly towards the, um, uh, the urban and city centre pubs and potentially the more premium ones as people look for these higher-end experiences and things like that. But I think people are starting to re-embrace the diversity of pubs potentially you know um you don't necessarily have to have a food offer you can survive without one and vice versa you know the, the more food focused pubs um still have to do a, a good job on the drink but it's not the be all and end all and they may be focusing more specializing on say their wine offer rather than necessarily their beer and things like that so it i think for me it it, it it's great to see the the diversity in there i think we we see um you know, pubs of all stripes uh, and varieties coming forward and, and thriving and surviving, which is great. Um, I mean, we we went headlong into food and following the smoking ban because it was an opportunity, um, and it and it was worth embracing. Some went too far one way, some didn't go embrace it enough. But it's nice to see that you know you can you can survive whatever you I think you can survive whatever you offer. As long as you do it well. I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, as a publication, we champion gastropubs with our Australia Down Top 50 Gastropubs yep. brand, which is consumer-facing. But why is it, do you think, that gastropubs have become so big and such a focus for consumers across the UK and, and abroad as well? I, I think, I mean, they're, they're, again, maybe this is a potential um, sort of fallout from, from, from that smoking ban. Of, I think with, with more and more pubs coming into food, it, it kind of created a, a greater level of acceptability for, for people to go to the pub to eat. The, the quality improved massively, uh, the experience improved massively. People started to look for ways to, to do more with food, to make more money out of food, to make it a better, better business. I mean, gastro pubs did exist before the smoking ban. That's, I'm not suggesting that isn't the case. But I think the consumer mindset has changed considerably since that smoking ban came in. Like I said, it became more acceptable to go out and eat in a pub, whereas previously you may have gone to the pub for a drink and then got on to the restaurant. People are going out spending more time in, in the pub and eating. So gastro pubs are, I guess, the sort of the pinnacle of that in terms of how the industry has evolved to uh, to embrace the opportunity and, and consumers love it. And they, they are looking to, um, to these really top tier pubs to provide uh, outstanding experiences when when they eat out but not at outstanding prices so that that is a key advantage and i also think i mean when you look at the the casual dining market and the and the, the somewhat imploding sort of momentum within that that so we've seen it's a boom and bust to a certain extent i think the benefit and the beauty of pubs is the versatility of them you know they they to what extent they embrace their food offer but also the the variety within it as well you know you're not tied to any single cuisine if you're a pub you're not just italian food or chinese food or curry you can do a bit of everything and it provides that sort of more compelling offer to the consumer i guess well that's all about we have time for but before we do say goodbye ed i understand you want to talk to us about the launch of the publican awards Yes, yeah. So we've uh, we are now officially open for entries to uh, to all pub companies that are looking to come into uh, to the awards this year. Uh, this is um, it's a real standout event for for the industry. Um, it's the uh, the ones that everyone wants to win. So we're we're hoping we're going to see some uh, some great businesses coming forward for this year to really put their sort of uh, stake in the ground and. Um, and see how they uh, how they perform against their peers. Um, the entries are open, I think, until November the eighth. 
and uh, and then we will move forward with the judging. But um, but yes, I'd, I'd I'd urge every operator out there to to have a look at the website. Um, I think it's www.publican.co.uk. Uh, have a look at the categories that are in there and uh, and go for it because you know these these awards mean a lot. They mean a lot to uh, to our winners um, and to our finalists. And and they're it's not just bragging rights. If you can win one, they can really sort of help. Uh, help your business. Um, we do see uh, the, the previous winners um, are delighted with the effects it has on on internal morale, internal uh, retention of staff, and recognising and rewarding their, their good work within that. And also for recruitment as well. You know, if uh, people are looking to to where they want to work in the business, and you know, if, if they can go and work for a, a leading award winner, then they're going to do that. It can also help you give more direction within your business as well. I, I've been a judge on, on the drinks category and the food categories for a few years now, and we get repeat entries, and I see how their businesses have changed as a result of the, the judges' feedback because it's such a rigorous and intense awards, and we do give so much feedback. That's it, and it's, and it's a great way to, you know, I, I always say this with, with these awards, you know, to, to take a step back and have a, have a bit of a dispassionate look at your business in, in that initial entry process. It's, it's a great way of sort of getting it up on the blocks and having a poke around underneath. And I think we, um, we, we aim to be, with that rigour and, and discipline that we put into the awards, um, it's, it's a great way to benchmark yourself against, against the competition and then sort of you know, see, see how you've done, look at that feedback, work out where you can improve going forward. So win or not, they're, they're worth doing. And of course, more details can be found on the Morning Advertiser website, in the magazine on the 7th of October, and on the Publican website, which Ed mentioned a moment ago. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next month with interviews with the likes of Tom Warner from Warner's Gin, and we'll be launching our new and revamped legal surgery with Popleston Allen. But for now, here's Nikki Thatcher's interview with this year's overall winner of the Greybridge Pub Awards, Mark Anea of the Cot Inn. Thanks for listening. It feels absolutely amazing. Um, we've we've really really worked hard with the Cot, and we have a fantastic team, and we're selling lovely local produce and great drinks, um, and. Um, We're just, I'm just really delighted to win it. Well, I don't think they'll believe it. I think they'll be, well, I think they, 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 they really deserve it, but I think they'll be really, really pleased. It's just really, ha- really shows the rec- you know, it gives, gives them, them the recognition. They really have worked hard. I've got such a great, talented young team, fantastic chefs, and a, and a really, really good team have been there for a long time with us. And um, it really does show the commitment they put into the business is now really paying off, so we're really, really pleased. Um, well, we're a quintessential, beautiful, ancient, 700-year-old thatch building for a start in, in one of the most beautiful parts of the country, in the South Hams. So we live in a stunning area, but we, have, um, we just have so much going on around us um, with arts and culture and lovely, lovely countryside, but the, the most important thing really is we have this fantastic produce, so we really, we are a food-led operation. And um, we're, um, you know, we, for instance, we're buying all our lamb and all our beef direct from the farmer. Um, it, it's, it, it's, um, it's produced in Dartington, you know, all naturally reared. Um, it, even the slaughterhouse is only three miles away, so it's, it's absolutely fantastic, the, the quality of produce, all, all the herbs, all the watercress, all the seasonal stuff. Is, is really, really amazing. We have an amazing natural larder around us. Um, and we, you know, we just, we just, you know, we are a proper pub. We do have locals 
Um, we have people coming in with dogs, and we, you know, simplest, you know, same. Some of the Ken comes in twice a day, every day, seven days a week. You know, we are really a true, a proper, proper pub. Uh, we've got great, lovely big beer garden for the summer, an outside kitchen, which is great with covered areas. Um, you know, we play music on a on a Wednesday and a Sunday night. You know, we've got loads going on, which is great. And we really are a, a proper British pub, and it's really great to have recognition. This accolade means means it will mean a lot to us. You know, and it's really you know the pub has been trading for seven hundred years. Um, it's, it's it's actually one of the second is the second oldest lights second longest licensed thatched inn in the country. Or well, that's its claim to fame. But um, it's, yeah, no, it's brilliant. It's absolutely great. So we're really pleased. And how are you going to market it? I mean, how are you going to get it out there that you are the best part in the Thank you.